15, starting in verse 44, if you want to turn there. It is awesome we serve a gracious God. He's the God who enables us to do everything. And I think when it comes to sharing the gospel or parts of our walk, we, we can be a bit hard on ourselves. Uh, or we, we think that things depend upon us, or we congratulate ourselves on a job well done. Um, and if we're pouring out our heart to somebody to say, hey, this is the way of salvation, and this is the truth, and, and they, they just push it off and, and have no interest in it, we can put the blame on ourselves that, uh, well, it's my poor delivery, or I, I forgot where that verse was, or, um, I wasn't answer to, I wasn't able to answer that question on the spot. And so, oh, it's my bad that they're not believing. But really, we're never to blame for someone else's unbelief when we're sharing them the truth. When we introduce them to the, to Jesus Christ who has brought us to salvation, he is also able through his word to bring them to salvation. Instead of, because we want to feel self-confident, don't we? We want to have an amount of confidence, like coming into a meeting. You, let's just go to the, the worldly part of it. You go into a meeting, you want to be prepared. You want to have an idea about what you're going to be presenting if you know you're, it, the, it's your presentation. You want, to have a, you want to have preparation, right? So that makes sense. But when it comes to sharing the gospel, it's the gospel that's the power of God to save. Not our wisdom of words or our good arguments or our ability to engage someone. Our, our fault is usually the reluctance to share the gospel. But Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. So the gospel, the good news, that's the power of God to salvation. And it's so good that God's the one who saves us. He's the one who enables us to share the good news with others. And if we know him, we can introduce others to him. We don't uh, get a little weird if I have to introduce my wife. Like, how am I going to do this? That'd be really awkward. Or my son. Like, okay, how am I going to couch this? How am I going to bring the, my relationship with this person into our conversation? Like, there's that doesn't even happen because it's my wife and my children. And you say, hey, here they are. And, and so we don't need to worry. We can trust God. So let's pray, and then we'll jump into our text. Father in heaven, thank you that you are just an awesome God. You're our Father. You're the one who's called us out of darkness and into light. You're the one who has the power to save, and you've given us your word. We praise you for it. We ask for your blessing upon this time, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would uh, just unite us to fear your name, to hear your word, with the intention to obey, in Jesus' name. Amen. God had called Paul and Barnabas to his work. And that's where we find ourselves today. They had gone to Cyprus. Then they went uh, to Asia Minor, north into modern-day Turkey. And as was their custom, they went to the Jewish synagogue, and they went through the service, and they they were asked to give an exhortation to the people. If you have anything to say, say on. And so Paul, he stands up, and he exhorted them. He exhorted them to trust in Jesus Christ. And he proved from the scriptures, the Jewish scriptures, that Jesus was the Messiah that God promised to send to save his people from their sins. The law was unable to cleanse people from their sin. It couldn't offer forgiveness, but forgiveness is offered through Jesus Christ. 
that we can be fully pardoned before a holy God, that we can be rendered righteous by his grace. And we don't read in this passage any sort of response from the people, except the Gentiles, after they heard the message, it said they begged that, please give us this message again next week. They were so hungry for the gospel. They were thirsty for the grace of God. And uh, they wanted others to hear about it too. I'm sure that on any given day in the synagogue, not everyone was there. And so they're thinking, well, they really need to hear this message too. And so they, they ended up bringing everybody, pretty much the whole town, show, town shows up for this next week's service that we're going to read about. Do you notice that when we have a good thing, we recommend it to others? And it's, it's something we actually want to do. Like it could be a kitchen gadget. Where it's like, this thing is great. It's so useful. Everyone should have this. Or you go to a cafe. Oh, it was amazing. That was the best experience I've had. Best coffee in Sydney. And we know a little bit about coffee. So it's like, you're quick to offer that. Not really thinking about how they're going to take it. But we can do that with other things. With the gospel. With our relationship with God. But really, our lives, more than just having a conversation, our life is a living recommendation of the power of God to save, the way that he changes us and makes us love people that before we had offenses with and that we are now united together to want to please him. The joy of the Lord, the peace that passes understanding is now in our hearts. So Acts 13, 44, we come to the next Sabbath. On the next Sabbath, about almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. It's important to point out that the next Sabbath, they gathered together not to hear these foreigners speak, but to hear the word of God. They wanted to hear from God, and they gathered together. And this should be our aim when we come to a Bible teaching church, if we're going to read the Bible or Uh, listen to messages, it should be to seek God and to hear from him. Because we can come to church for a lot of different reasons, right? Um, Well, it's Sunday. That's why we go to church. It happens to be Sunday. That could be it. It could be um, you'd feel really lame if you didn't. Uh, Maybe you're responsible for part of the service today. And if you were slated to preach and you decided, ah, I want to sleep in, oh, that, that would be a negative. Um, you know, because someone asked you, because you want to have a coffee or have a barbecue or something. Uh, I was once told to my face at church that they were there only for the air conditioning, which was pretty awesome. I was like, wow, that's so honest. I really appreciate that. <laughs> it's really hot in my house. I, I kind of want some air conditioning. Oh, cool. Great, glad you're here, and I was. But uh, it just kind of opened my eyes a little bit. Needless to say, we can attend a service with little thought of or desire to actually hear from God. We're not really thinking about that sometimes, and it's ironic because we're coming to a place where we're going to teach from God's Word. So if we're going to read it and study it, we should be listening with the intent to obey. Because there's often a connection between those who um, hear God speak and they have an intent to do whatever he says. 
If you're not interested to hear what God has to say, don't be surprised if you're not hearing from him. But if you intend to do what God says, you say, God, anything you say, I'm going to do that. He will speak and you will hear him. He enables us to. So the Jews, they see the great multitude, primarily composed of Gentiles. They were filled with envy. They proceeded to hijack the uh, proceedings. It's like, where were all these people last week? You know, we've been around here. These foreigners come and they start preaching this gospel and they, they have a huge following and they were a bit envious of that. Um, and pride in the people led to personal attacks and blasphemy, speaking against God and his people. So instead of having the platform he had the previous speak, week to speak freely, he's being contradicted, interrupted. It's just not, he's not able to communicate with the people. He's being attacked at every turn. They're, they're shouting him down. They spoke evil of Jesus and these messengers who were bringing the way of salvation. And it just shows us that envy and pride, it blinds us to the truth. They couldn't hear the truth. They were blaspheming and contradicting the truth because of the envy that was in their hearts. And if we have envy in our hearts, we're not able to hear clearly from God. Verse 46, then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have set you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be for salvation to the ends of the earth. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. So instead of being silenced or cowering in the face of this abuse, Paul and Barnabas, it says they grew bold. And it was fitting that they should preach the gospel to the Jews first, even as Jesus went to the lost sheep of Israel. They were his primary focus. But having rejected the gospel, then it's like, hey, well, we're going to go to the Gentiles, someone who will listen to us and actually receive the words that we're saying, the word of God. And it says there, judging themselves unworthy of eternal life. So for a Jew, it must have been a great struggle to reconcile. We're the chosen people of God, and the, the, the Gentiles are unclean, and yet our clean God has given them a way to salvation, same as us, and it was difficult for them to process because they um, had pride in their hearts. And this lack of grace and love as they sought to hinder others from coming to Christ, it showed their unworthiness to enter into heaven. Not that any of us is worthy for heaven, but if we think in ourselves that we are worthy, it just shows how unworthy we are. No one earns salvation. No one is worthy to be saved. But having been saved, having been bought with the precious blood of Jesus, we are to live worthy of that because God has spared no expense to lavish his love upon you, to show you how much he cares about you, that he has a future and hope for your life, and that he has plans which include you, both on this world and in eternity. It's like, wow, that's, that's so much love. So he used the scriptures. He showed the Messiah was Jesus Christ. He confirmed that God's call was to be a light among the Gentiles. So the, the scriptures they rejected about Christ also spoke about Jesus and his followers being a light to the Gentiles. He quotes from Isaiah 49.6, which says, Indeed, he says, Is it too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob, to restore the preserved ones of Israel? 
I will also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. So the salvation was not just for the Jews. It was not just for those in Jerusalem. It was for Gentiles to the ends of the earth. Anyone who will call, anyone who will hear that call and respond. I remember well my surprise when in Israel, our secular guide said something along these lines. He said, you Christians, you want everyone to follow Jesus. The Jews aren't interested in that. And I was like, really? But I, I hadn't really thought of it that way. And he says, well, you go out looking to find just any other person who wants to follow Jesus. But we make it as hard as possible to become Jews. We, we make task after task after the dues have to be paid before you can be accepted in. Now, it's fine for you to go to synagogue, but if you want to be orthodox, well, now, now you've got to start measuring up to a standard. That's a very high standard. So this was a generalization, of course, but it touches on the truth. The Jews were an exclusive group, and they were the keepers of knowledge. They were the ones who knew and studied the scriptures. Their whole lives were dedicated to it in obeying it. And their, their perspective was focusing on the Messiah coming to save them, to restore Israel. But God had a far greater scope than that. It wasn't just to ultimately restore Israel, but it was to restore lost sinners in communion with himself. Jew, Gentile, slave, free, man, woman, and child. That God wanted to redeem people. He wanted to overthrow the power of Satan in their lives, break them of their addictions, bring them into his presence, and rejoice with them forever. So God's plan was way bigger than just what God was doing in Israel. He he was going to move to the ends of the earth and shine his light everywhere so people could be saved. Instead of hammering away on these hardened hearts, Paul and Barnabas turned their attention to those receptive to the word of God. And this is a good uh, principle for us to consider. We make a mistake when we try to be the hammer. Have you ever tried to be the hammer? You know, being a bit forceful with your words. Maybe the volume going up a bit. See, we make lousy hammers, but the word of God is compared to a hammer. My word's nothing, but God's word, it is strong, it is powerful. It has the power in itself to break the hardest heart. We were some of those people. We were filled with pride. We were filled with envy. Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like a fire, says the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? So if we come into a conversation with someone and we think I'm going to be the hammer, God's word is strong. God's word is powerful. The the debates and the objections of men, they burn like chaff before the flame of his word. The power of God's word alone hitting the heart. You don't have to even be there, but the word has been spoken, those seeds have been sown, and God is going to work on them 24 hours a day in a way that you can't through force. He's going to minister grace and love in a way that when we're the hammer, we're not, we're not conveying that at all. God's word is sufficient. Do you believe that? Do you believe the gospel is sufficient to save anyone? And that the word of God is powerful enough to break the hardest heart. Because if you believe that, it will drastically change the way you interact with unbelievers. If you think you've got to, you know, debate them in or reason them in, there is reasonable 
uh, facts concerning our faith. It can be proved. There is strong evidence. It's like those defenses that people raise up, God will bring them down like the walls of Jericho. Levi Lesko, in a message he gave, he talked about that the walls didn't fall down in increments. They didn't see the wall getting lower and lower each day as they walked around. When they were obedient to God and followed his leading, and they shouted when it was time, so it's like speaking when it's time, the walls fell down flat all at once. And so this also speaks of our um, our need to persist in obeying God and trusting him that, hey, walking around these walls, it doesn't look like they're coming down anytime soon. But God did it. That was God's way. And so he might use us in a very interesting way through not being the hammer, letting God's word speak. Just saying, hey, there's this verse. I want you to read it. Let them read it. And the Lord will go to work. When Jesus was rejected by people, he did not argue with them. Like, I'm the son of God. Like, you should be listening. Like, he, he wasn't having these childish, almost, arguments that we can tend to have. He didn't argue with his naysayers. He moved on to people who would listen to him. So what was the Gentile response to this revelation? It says they were glad and they glorified the word of the Lord. Primarily by receiving it and believing it. As we see in verse 48, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. God's given every man a conscience. God's given uh, effectual salvation offered to every person. All who will hear him, repent, and trust in him. Everyone has this concept of right and wrong that uh, has he has put in us that agrees with his justice. We're all born excluded from the family of God because of sin, but all are invited to repentance and salvation in Jesus. This is the good news. There are some people who really care about eternity. There's others that don't care at all. I find that hard to believe, but that's the fact. Um, and if because we need God's help even to believe and trust him, Without God, how can we be washed of sin and be forgiven? So if you reject God and you reject his message, how, how can we have salvation? So if we receive, if we are open to the things of God, we will yield in him moving us to believe in him and to trust in him. Matthew Henry says, as many as were disposed to eternal life, as many as had a concern about their eternal state, and aim to make sure of eternal life, it was the grace of God that wrought it in them. So the grace of God's been freely given to everyone. So God's not to be blamed if people will not believe him or they refuse him. Because there were many people who saw the great things Jesus did, but they did not believe in him. And we find that hard to believe, right? Like, wow, when you saw that, how could you how could you see Lazarus raised from the dead, who'd been dead four days, and then trot off to the Pharisees to tattle on him instead of believing on him. I don't know. Such is the confusing, confusing state of the human heart at times. Such We have been that way as well. We have seen God's redemption and his salvation and his grace, and yet we have run the other way, and we've forgotten about it. Acts 13.49, And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region, 
But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and chief men of the city, raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and expelled them from their region. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and came to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Like good seed sown liberally by a farmer or how yeast permeates dough, it says the word of God was being spread throughout all the region. It was just going everywhere. People were hearing with their ears. They were reading it with their eyes. Uh, It was going to work on their hearts. Walls were being broken down. However, there were unbelieving Jews not pleased with the state of affairs, and they expelled them from their coasts. So they got rid of them. They were no longer welcome. It's like their visa had been revoked. All right, you guys are out of here. And Jesus had talked about this in Matthew 10, 14, and 15. He said, And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust from your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. It's a pretty strong warning. The Pharisees had this practice when they went into Gentile country. When they were coming out of Gentile country back onto Jewish soil, they would shake their feet. They didn't want the defilements of the Gentiles to even be brought into uh, Jewish soil. That was their practice. And so Jesus is like, well, you do this as a testimony against them. When you shake the dust off your feet, they, they know what's going on. And they'll see and understand. It's kind of like washing your hands of someone, I guess, in modern vernacular. God would see to it. God's the one who would save them. God is the one who would ultimately judge them. It wasn't for Paul and Barnabas to be fussed over. But he said, you know, shake the dust off your feet because they're the defiled ones. And uh, God would see to it. Doesn't it take faith in Christ to leave um, either a conversation or at a point of rejection and just leaving it in the Lord's hands and trusting that he is going to do the work. He is. We don't have to war- threaten them. We don't have to avenge ourselves of them when they've said hurtful and offensive things, when they've insulted you and they've been really rude. And, and in taking the high road, we tell them we're taking the high road. That sounds a lot like pride that we would walk in love and grace despite offense. We can be offended, right? We're not beyond offense. We can be offended. We can be hurt. And it's good for us to let those hurts drive us to the Lord rather than attacking others. Or thinking that it all depends upon me to make sense to this person when they've chosen to reject Jesus Christ. Now, in light of what's just happened, that last verse, it's pretty surprising, isn't it? It says, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, having your visa revoked, it's a pretty big deal. Being kicked out, you know, being rejected, seeing the gospel message rejected, seeing the the fruitfulness of the ministry, and then, oh, we've got to leave. We have to. We don't have a choice. They and those who they were that left behind The disciples, not just Paul and Barnabas, all of them were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. You find people that are filled with the Holy Spirit do have the joy of the Lord. Because that's a fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. I think Galatians 5, 20, 
Is that 22 in there? You guys can double check that. Uh, could you turn to 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9? So they were facing, we, we figure Paul never worried. He never had any cares. But we see in other places that he despaired even of life. Life was tough. He had difficulties. He, he would start a missionary journey not, not knowing exactly where he was going. And when you get arrested and shipped off as a convict on a vessel, you're not going to make your return flight. It's not going to happen. If since coming to Christ, we only experienced peace, rest, ease, and comfort, there would be nothing to prove the genuineness of our faith. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, we would love it to be heaven right now, for us to be in heaven. That when you come to Christ and you trust in him, life is just so much better, so much easier, and there's comfort everywhere. That's not how life is, is it? It's a lot of work. There's a lot of pain and trials and persecutions, difficulties. Just trying to get a good night's sleep can be an impossible chore. 1 Peter 1, 6-9. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom, having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. It seems like joy and grief. How do those go together? But it's saying you've been grieved by trials, but in this you greatly rejoice. Think about Job. When he suffered at the hands of Satan, God allowed Satan to trouble him. And not charging God with wrong, not blaming God, it was evidence his faith was genuine. When David, being pursued by King Saul, and he said, there's only a step between me and death, and he sought God for help rather than turning from God, it was evidence his faith was genuine. When Paul and Barnabas were spitefully treated for speaking the truth and loving people and sacrificing everything to share the gospel, and they had great joy, it shows that their faith was genuine. This is evidence. When you face tough times, the valleys of depression, attacks from haters, uncertainties, difficulties, do you tend to seek God more or less? When there's a tragedy in your household, you seek God more or less. If you seek him less, that would be evidence that your faith is, or your, your focus is not on God at the moment. But if you're, you're, Almost response, it has to be seeking God more in difficulty. It's evidence your faith is genuine, and you can rejoice in that because your your genuine faith is more precious than gold. Gold cannot buy heaven. It cannot buy salvation. But faith in Jesus Christ, it gives us eternal life and joy now, even in the midst of grief, because we know God and he speaks to us. See, we... We pin our hopes on a, on a, we're in the dark place. We're just looking for a beam of light. We're just looking for a little change 
in our circumstances. We're looking for a hint that that person that we love is going to come around. Those are the things that we're, we're focused on. We can hope to see that change in a person more than rejoicing in the God who loves that person more than I ever could. So if you're languishing and you're discouraged and you are retreating from God and you're running from God instead of running to him, examine your heart and see why that might be. When we're discouraged, when we're disillusioned and disappointed, usually it's us or other people that are the central point of our focus. But when we look to God, when we look to Jesus and his suffering, we are given consolation that nothing in this world can. Because we say if this circumstance would change, everything would be better. But that's not the case. There will be another problem and another trouble. And the thing that you think is the good thing to happen, even if when that happens, it doesn't always turn out how we think it should or we want it to. We can trust the Lord. So we can praise God for trials of faith. When you're doing what you believe God wants you to do and you're getting kicked out, we can rejoice with great joy because we know God is with us and we are his children. Acts 14, verse 1. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. So after being expelled from Antioch in Pisidia, they came east to Iconium. And they preached in the synagogue as they had before. And it says a great multitude of both Jews and Gentiles believed. Which is great. I mean, a great multitude. There's this church that's being birthed there. And it must have been a great encouragement after what they just endured in Antioch. But it wasn't long before the unbelieving Jews stirred up the multitudes. And it says, poisoned the minds against the things they were saying, against Paul and Barnabas. Now, it's interesting in this case that Paul and Barnabas don't leave. Right? Previously, they had been expelled and they're knocking the dust off their sandals and moving on. And here, though rejected, though people's minds are poisoned against them, it says, therefore, they stayed there a long time. Can you imagine that? People's minds are poisoned against you, and for that reason, we're hanging out. We're not going anywhere. We are going to persuade you. We're going to speak boldly in the Lord. So you see how the Holy Spirit leads. It's not just a cookie cutter how you deal with something. God will lead you. He'll show you when it's time to move on, when it's time to persist. And they persisted against poisoned minds. Perseverance, grace, very important aspects of our walk with Jesus, aren't they? There are always opportunities to quit and to make excuses to quit what God has told you to do or the thing that he's leading you to do. Have you ever doubted that the cost is worth it? Like, man, this is just killing me. Is it really worth all this effort? Well, think of the price Jesus paid. Think of his blood that he was willing to shed so we could be saved. Because I was the poisoned one. I was the proud one. I was the one who wanted nothing to do with God. 
And even when I came to Christ, I had such pride within me from knowledge that it's like I was, I was just a hindrance to whatever God wanted to do, just kicking and screaming at every turn. Think about the long chain of believers, largely nameless. I mean, you guys know some, some famous uh, missionaries and people who have spread the word in the world. But think of the thousands, tens of thousands of believers who have held this. They have brought this to us today from that time in Antioch and in Iconium. People who have continued preaching the word of God. And we're, they were all links in a chain coming to us where we have the scriptures. And we have such a testimony of people who gave their lives for Jesus. And you think, what, what gratitude we should have for those people. And you can be part of that in passing on that truth to other people and to another generation that does not know the Lord. You know, when the, God brought the children of Israel out of Egypt, you would have thought forever they would have known God because of the great things he had done and the stories that they were to tell because they were true how God had delivered his people from slavery, the miraculous things he did, right? The ten plagues passing through the Red Sea. Well, the first generation perished in the wilderness. The second generation goes in and takes the land. The next generation did not know the Lord. They didn't know God. They still were going to tabernacle and offering sacrifices and following the law, but they didn't know God. And we think, how could this be? but we don't have to think very far into our own history that there have been a lot of people who trusted in Christ and followed Christ, and yet we live in a secular society. People who don't care about God. So God granted that they would do signs and wonders. It confirmed the truth of what they spoke. Just wanted to emphasize that spiritual gifts, they are good and useful. Without love, however, they're compared to a crashing cymbal at random. Right? A crashing cymbal at the end of the song, that could be cool. But a crashing cymbal when you're, you know, trying to have a phone conversation and it's right next to you is really shocking and just grating. And just, for me, it's like a, a, a jolt of adrenaline and I just want to kill. You know, you know when you're like shocked and surprised, you know, the fight or flight? I'm like the fighter. I'm not a fighter, but the, that's my like, ooh, like, ooh, all right, now I'm settled down, that's good. I don't know how you are, but yeah, without love, it's not going to get the right point across. It's not going to be in tune with what God is doing. Love is many of the, uh, one of the many fruits of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit, it really trumps gifts of the Spirit at every turn. Think of it this way. Moses, God allowed him to do a miracle when he was disobedient to God. God said, speak to the rock. He struck the rock. The miracle still happened and the people still benefited. But what happened to Moses? He was judged for his sin. He was prohibited from entering the land of promise because he transgressed. But he did a miracle. So we see that giftedness does not indicate necessarily present closeness with God. Because if he had been close to God in that moment, he would not have disobeyed him. But he was mad and without love. So he did not obey and he was judged. So gift, as far as doing a miracle, it's not the end. Like that 
God can use miracles, and I believe he does miracles. I pray that he does miracles in our midst today. But better to be filled with the love and joy of God in the midst of a trial than to move a physical mountain because we want to impress someone or to be somebody. Acts 14, verse 4. But the multitude of the city was divided, part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and Jews with their rulers to abuse and to stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia and to the surrounding region. And they were preaching the gospel there. This preaching of the gospel, it created division in Iconium. And if you could please turn to Matthew 10, verse 34. It reminds me of words that Jesus said where he, uh, we know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, right? He's the one who gives us peace with God through his shed blood. But he said he would bring a sword. Matthew 10, 34. It says, do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be those of his own household. Angels broadcasted the birth of Jesus Christ by saying, glory to God on highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Both of those have been true. Jesus has brought peace, but in bringing peace, he's brought a sword. His sword is the word, the word of God, and it divides people. If you're for him or against him, if you will believe him or you will deny him and reject him. And so this is the word that divides the sheep from the goats, belief and unbelief. And so he says, don't think I've come to bring peace. Like we're all just going to be this great, big, happy family. I've given you my word, and you'll be determined who you are on which side you're on. Will you be on my side? Will you honor and believe the things I've said, or will you regard it as just any other word? The foolish heard the words of Jesus, but the wise obeyed, right? In the parable Jesus told, you know, the wise man heard. He built that house on the rock. When the waves came, it withstood. The foolish man also heard, but was proved foolish in that he built on the sand. And great was the fall. So there was a division between the two. One was wise and one was foolish. Heard the same thing, but the way they responded to it was the distinction. Ultimately, there was this combined effort, you know, an an assassination attempt now to abuse and to stone them. And I think that's pretty terrible. And... uh, like, I'm like, wow. I mean, stoning someone would be bad enough, but to abuse and stone them seems pretty bad. So they fled south to Lystra and Derby. They kept preaching the gospel. They didn't change the gospel. A gospel that's altered cannot save. So they kept preaching the gospel wherever they went, and they weren't discouraged. Now, verse 6 that we've just read, it could be easily overlooked. It's, it's an interesting verse. I'm not going to get into it too much, but If you want to look up Sir William Ramsey, he's a Scottish historian. And this verse was a verse often used to show that the Bible um, was not the inspired word of God. And Luke may have been um, 
a second century authorship rather than a first, first century eyewitness account. So this guy, William Ramsey, he was a historian and an archaeologist and went to Asia Minor to see what he could find. And the evidence was compelling. And he says, this is the very verse that God's used to show me that Luke was a historian of first rank, and it's completely true. First century authorship, eyewitness account. Because he was able to demonstrate that Lystra and Derby were indeed together from the years between 37 and 72 AD, which is exactly where the book of Acts falls. And you could not have known that because of the upheaval in that region where the, the uh, government was changing and the Roman authority was shifting around. And so he just nails it so specifically. And he said there's over 50 times in the book of Luke where he uses someone's name very specific or a place that's very specific that only an eyewitness could possibly have known. So he says, man, I went in so skeptical, but then I started using the Bible to say, I need a hint in where to go or what to do, and the Bible was helpful for him. So it's cool. The faith of Paul and Barnabas, the Lord, he helped them to endure great persecution, and they were steadfast. And I want to be that way. I'm sure you guys do too, you who love the Lord. Where they were bold, they bore witness to the word of his grace, and grace really simply describes the gospel. If I had to sum up the gospel in a word, for me, I would say grace, because it's good news I don't deserve. Can you imagine how happy you would be as an Australian citizen if there was a new policy put forward that we are going to open up the full benefits of citizenship to foreigners who had committed grave crimes, who boasted of doing those crimes, and were awaiting execution. Bring them in. Would you want them to come here? Probably not. Like, that's not cool. That's not right. We don't want those people here. I am those people. You are those people. And God's done so much better than just giving us citizenship in heaven. We have sinned against a holy God. We continued proudly in our sin, offending him. And yet he has given us a full pardon. So no recollection of the sins that we've committed. He's given us an eternal inheritance in heaven. And he's adopted us as his own children. That we're part of his family now. Come on. Really? That is grace. We don't deserve that. Yeah, that policy would be a loser, I'm sure. Nobody would say, get those guys out of here. We're not that nice, right? And, and Jesus died to make that happen. God sent his only son, whom he loved, to die so that we could have this agreement. So God is good and he's also given everything so that we can know him and love him. Now, our practice is to receive communion on the first Sunday of the month, and I thought it good to just, to think about what exactly is the purpose? Why are we doing this? What is the reason behind the cup that we drink and the bread that we eat? It's more than just something we do the first Sunday of the month. It's more than a ritual or a tradition. If you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 10, 15 through 17, I thought this was a very uh, good 
consideration for us today. In context, the church in Corinth, they were extremely gifted by God. In that book, he told them about spiritual gifts and how to rightly use them. I mean, these are people who are contributing with psalms and um, songs and scriptures and prophecies and tongues and interpretation. But he says, so he's talking to people who are filled with the Spirit of God. And he says, there needs to be an agreement between your life and the Spirit who's filling you, God. There should be an agreement in the way that you act and what you believe. And he talks about how God, though though God chose the Jews, he judged them for their sin because of their fornication and their idolatry and their murmuring. And he says, Christians, God is also, you're not off the hook for your sin. There's going to be consequences for your sin as a child of God. Just like um, my son would have consequences should he disobey, right? Just like we would have consequences as citizens of this country. Now, when you see this ring on my finger, you would deduce that I'm married, and so I am. And I should live in a way that honors my wife, Laura, whether I'm wearing the ring or not. Would you agree? A ring I can just take off and... Nobody knows the better, but I made a vow before God and many witnesses and my wife that I would love her and cherish her all my days. And so I am held accountable to that before God. So I must be devoted to her whether or not I'm wearing the ring, whether or not she's in the room. Even if I'm far away in another country, I'm still married to her. We have made a covenant together. And so my life regarding, let's say, single women... I'm to conduct myself in purity and holiness, remembering that connection that we share as being one flesh. And it's the same with God. He's made a covenant with us, and we've agreed to that covenant with him. And he he goes on. He says, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. This cup of blessing which we bless Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ, the bread which we break? Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. The word communion, it's koinonia in the Greek, and that means fellowship, contribution, communication. And we've all been joined together as one in Christ through faith in him. And as we eat the bread and the cup, we are symbolizing that unity. It's a symbol of the unity we have in Christ and the work that he's done inside of us. And on the night where Jesus was betrayed, it says he took bread and broke it. He blessed it, gave it to his disciples and said, eat. This is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup after supper. So they were just having a meal. It wasn't like, a, like all right, we're going to have communion now. They were just eating. And then he took this cup and he said, this is represents the new covenant in my blood. And in eating that bread and drinking that cup, they would proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. It's a time of remembrance and proclamation. We remember what Jesus has done. He took upon himself the curse, and he's given us a cup of blessing. All blessing from God. And like baptism is a sign When you're immersed under the water and you come up again, it's 
identifying with Christ and obedience to him, that you are now born again, you've passed from death to life, even as Jesus has died and he's raised from the grave, that we are now new. We're born again through Christ. And receiving communion is very much the same. That we are identifying with Christ, we are proclaiming his love through his sacrifice, and that we are one with him. And if we're one with him, we can't be one with sin. He says, Christians, you got to get this. Because he goes on to say, in verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. So he's like, if guys, if you're engaged in idolatry when it's not the Sabbath, you can't do that. You can't come into the Lord's presence and think that everything's fine and you have nothing to repent of when your life isn't being lived in, in agreement with that. So it's not like when I put on my ring, I'm like, well, I was, I'm loyal to Laura when I wear this ring. But when I take it off, anything goes. I can look at anything, do anything, doesn't matter. Oh, it does matter. So if we're partakers of a new life in Christ, should we drink sin like water? Jesus has forgiven me. Do I forgive other people? Jesus has spoken the truth. Do we speak the truth or do we lie? If Jesus is our God, how can we go after many idols? Jesus has given us blessing. Should we curse others? Jesus humbled himself. Should I be proud and arrogant and boastful? And having received the gospel by grace, do we demand perfection? See, there must be an agreement. Because in coming to Christ, and again, when we come to this table, it's not to focus on our sin. It's to focus on the one who died for our sin. We proclaim him. We remember him. Because our sins have been washed away. But let's not keep remaining in them. Let's be washed. One Corinthians eleven twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. So having received such love, let's love one another as he loves us. So I ask, is there an agreement in your life between the life we see Christ living and the life that you are leading? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day to proclaim and rejoice in what our Savior has done. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are a great God. You are so awesome that you have given us eternal life. And you've given us a cup of blessing to partake of. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your patience with us, Lord, because we are unfaithful. We are like those uh, lazy servants who, who have not been about your business when we should have. And we have been uh, like the wise man who built on the sand when we should have been building only on the rock. And we're like a person who removes their wedding band and, and forgets that they have an agreement and a covenant before God and their spouse. Lord, make on us clean hearts. Purify us, not that we are worthy of you, Lord, but that we would praise you, for you are worthy. You are a worthy God, awesome and powerful, and we worship you, we magnify you, we praise you for the blood that was spilt on that cross. We thank you for Jesus' body being broken for us and that we can have new life through faith in him. 
Thank you for the gospel, Lord, and the news that we have and can share with others that you have redeemed us and we're yours forever. Help us to walk in light of that truth. Lord, I pray that you would minister to every heart here. Thank you for your word. That's like a fire. That's like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. Lord, break our hard hearts. Do a work inside each one of us that we would praise you and honor and magnify you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Father, for the sacrifice of your Son. Thank you for providing a Savior and atonement and redemption and joy and peace through his sorrow and suffering. Thank you that he has been raised in eternal glory. And we know that you have power over sin and over death. That there's no sin too great that you cannot forgive. You will not forgive. You are just so gracious to us, Lord. We thank you again for that body that was broken. And just uh, how Jesus was willing for his, his body to be torn apart so that we could be made whole. Thank you, Lord, for your blood that was shed And you have sprinkled many nations, Lord, us to the end of the earth. You have thought of us and you have loved us with an everlasting love. Thank you for washing us clean, Lord, taking away our shame and our guilt. Thank you for purging us of all that sin and the foolishness. Thank you, Lord, for the new life that you've given us through Jesus. And thank you that he says, come away, let's talk a while. Thank you that he's our good shepherd. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. Thank you, Lord, that you're there for us. And you won't leave or forsake us. Help us not to wander from you. We praise you and thank you for your sacrifice and your love and your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.